You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. It is our custom here weekly at the end of the reading of Scripture to say this is the word of the Lord. And after I say that, I invite you to, with me, say thanks be to God. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Parents, you are invited to dismiss with your kids ages 2 through 4 for one class and grades 1 through 3 for the other. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Last week, I told you that I I might be going back to Hebrews 6, right? And indeed, I am uh, going back to the well. (laughs) Uh, Before I pray and begin, I want to explain why I'm going back to Hebrews 6, right? Like, didn't we just, you know, cover those verses? Yes, we did. Uh, Last week, I accented the need to press in Press on in the faith, especially if you're weary, a weary Christian, right? I encourage you to to press on in the Christian faith. Jesus is the anchor for your soul, Hebrews 6, verse 19. And we need to see from God's word that with Christ as the anchor, we will withstand the, the winds and the rain that come our way. So I spent time looking at that and encouraging you from that particular theme that comes from Hebrews 6. And yet another theme emerges and runs parallel to what I shared last week. Here's the theme. Christians have a secure hope 
because God is faithful to his oath. That word popped up, the word oath popped up twice in our text. Let me say that again. Christians have a secure hope because God is faithful to his oath. I'll repeat that statement in different ways throughout this sermon because it is a crucial idea. The truth is a the, the truth is a source of a Christian's assurance, your assurance is that at the end of this journey you will be with the Lord. So I'm here to encourage you this morning that you can indeed be assured that at the end of the day, you will be with Christ. And we're going to go through the book of Genesis in order to understand what's being said in Hebrews 6. Here's a, a, sneak, uh, a sneak peek of where I'm leading you before I pray and get into the message. Many years ago, I was a pastor over a ministry, a singles ministry, called it College and Career. One young man approached me after giving a message And he asked, how can I be assured that I am saved? It's a good question, right? He was was processing a lot. I appreciated the question. How can he be assured? Well, part of my answer comes up in Hebrews 6. The condensed answer is that a Christian can be assured because of the faithfulness of God. What I I tried to do for this young man, and perhaps some of you uh, might find this helpful as well, is I wanted him to change his perspective on the answer to the question. Often when when we ask that type of question, a person looks inward, resulting in an insufficient and vexing answer. It all becomes dependent upon me. Can I just do more How do I know that God really, really likes me enough to allow me to enter in and be in his presence, right? And what I tried to help him with is like, no, you need to change your view and you need to stop looking at yourself and you need to look upon God. You need to look at the God-man that hung from a cross so that you can see the faithfulness of God. Some of you this morning may need to change how you answer that question. You need to see the man that hung from the cross and see the faithfulness of God. And it is because God is faithful that God's people can be assured they will press on until the end. Now, I'm going to build on this profound truth, but allow me to pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, as we're going to see this morning, you are indeed faithful. You do not lie. Your character is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Lord, I place this manuscript, the words on these pages at the foot of the cross. And as I pick it up, O oh Lord, help me to be faithful to you and to my dear friends that are in front of me this morning. And O oh Holy Spirit, may you be the greatest teacher in this room. I trust that you will indeed 
teach for our good and for the honor and glory of your great name. Amen. Several years ago, several churches, uh, several elders from churches that represent the denomination that we were a part of began to talk about what it means to adopt a confession of faith. Uh, If you don't know, Redemption Hill is a confessional church, which means we hold to a confession of faith that has historic roots with the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. If you don't know what that means, that's fine. But we began to talk about this as elders, right? And uh, someone brought up a, a fair question. It's like, why do we need a chapter, chapter 25, right? There's a book of our confession of faith. It's chapter 25. It says, oaths and vows. <laughs> like, why do we need this chapter? This seems a bit archaic. And uh, it garnered good debate, good discussion. I appreciated it. Um, I tried to make the case that we needed a chapter on oaths and vows. And we, apparently I won that part of the debate anyways, right? We got it. <laughs> Why, though? Why do we need a chapter on oaths and vows? And for the sake of definition... An oath refers to a promise made in God's presence to another human party, whereas a vow refers to maybe a a promise you make directly to God. Oh God, I'll never do that again. You know, it's kind of like a vow that you make before God. Or an oath is a little bit different. Even when we make promises, right? All those are different but closely related. Well, the question raised is this. Why do we need that particular chapter? I advocated then, and I maintain now, that the Bible tells us enough about the topic that warrants the chapter. Further, Scripture reflects what we experience every day in our life. We take oaths and vows all of the time. Sometimes we're not even realizing we're making a vow or or giving an oath. Think with me for a moment. What about a wedding ceremony? I know that the day Sharice and I were married, we swore to one another in the presence of God and before other people. If you are a member of Redemption Hill Church, you verbalized several oaths. Pastor Rob and I verbalized several oaths of what it means to be a shepherd of this church. Now here's my favorite kind of oath. It's when the farmer shakes hands with the landowner about the percentage each one will receive from the crop harvest, right? The paperwork is the handshake, and an oath is expressed. All right, Steve, you get you know, 60% of the harvest, I'll take 40, or whatever. Parents even know what I'm talking about. How many times have your children told you, Mom, Dad, I'll never do that again? <laughs> I promise. Cross my heart, hope to die, I will not put my hand in the cookie jar. So on an earthly and human level, we understand the nature of an oath and vow. But here's the deal. People break oaths and vows all the time. Because of a lack of integrity, an oath a person makes is broken without care. A broken oath is a direct result of a broken and sinful world. Um, this is no different than things that I say to my kids that I teach. I basically say, you, you're not going to cheat. With integrity, say to me, look in my eye and say, 
Mr. Powers, I'm just going to do my best, and I'm not going to cheat. I want them to make an oath, and I want them to uphold the oath and not break it. The first inkling of a broken oath took place in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, we read that God made man and gave him dominion over the garden, right? Genesis 1 and 2. Here you go, buddy. Take care of it. God entrusted man to work by naming all the animals. That would have been kind of a cool job, right? God even gives the parameters for living in the garden. Buddy, this is yours. All of it except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In theological terms, what took place in Genesis 1 and 2 is called the covenant of works. A covenant of works was created by God. It is as if God said to Adam and Eve, here are the parameters for living in my presence in my garden. If you obey my commands, you can enjoy. Enjoy. And as many of you know, we see in Genesis 3 the consequences of the broken agreement. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and sin is now a stain on the world and in man. Now, what does all this have to do with Hebrews 6? If I were you, I'd be wondering that right now. Like, how'd you, how'd you shoehorn that in, Pastor Sean? One of the main points of Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20 is that Christians have a secure hope because God is faithful to his oath to restore what has been broken. Even after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God made an oath that pointed to a future restoration and redemption. When God doled out the consequences for the rebellion of Adam, Eve, and the serpent, he says this to the serpent, which is just straight gospel. This is quite amazing. Listen to these words. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, that's going to be a big word that keeps coming up, offspring, over and over today. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Because of the faithfulness of God and despite the unfaithfulness of man, God is going to make things right. He's going to make things right. God has made a promise And we see throughout Holy Scripture that God upholds his promise, as we see in Hebrews 6, with an oath. You know, every every sermon's a little bit different in terms of how you receive it as an application. But I'm just going to say straight up, this is more about how we understand God than anything else. How we understand his character. Will God follow through or not? Will he uphold his promise? In Hebrews 6, note the subtle distinction between a promise and an oath. God makes a promise to Abraham, and we read in verse 13 that he swears by himself an oath to fulfill the promise. It would be like me saying to my wife, Sharice, 
I promise to love you until the day I die. We've made that promise. I made that promise, right? Over and over. I promise to love you until the day I die. And to show that my promise means something, I am going to make an oath before God and before other people that I am going to fulfill my promise. This is what the author of Hebrews has in mind when he goes back to the book of Genesis to show how the past, how the past promises impact the present. And by the way, what we'll see at the end of this sermon, the future. So, I hope this helps you make sense of this passage in Holy Scripture. Let's now look at the text in more detail. And here are a few headings to help you think through this particular passage. We need to first look at God's promise. Where is that? Why does it exist? Then we're going to see Abraham's response. And then we'll look more closely at the oath. Read with me verses 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. The first time God says anything about making a promise to Abraham is Genesis 12. Book of Genesis, chapter 12. We read that God first calls Abram to take his family and all his things and leave his country to travel to another country. He, he is to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the land of Canaan. For perspective, that's like southern Iraq and making your way to modern day Israel. He is to travel thousands of miles on foot or camels. Abram did take a pit stop in Haran because, hey, he probably needed a break, right? I'm going to give him a pass on that. Eventually did make his way all the way to Canaan. Before looking at the promise, here's what is stunning to me when I think about Genesis 12. Who was God to Abram at that point, right? Nowhere do we read that Abram had a faith-filled relationship with God before Genesis 12. God shows up on the scene and Abram obeys. It's, It's quite remarkable In God's perfect wisdom, God is going to use Abram. And we see through, again, his name would change, to Abraham. We see through Abraham's obedience that God is going to fulfill and restore what has been broken. He's going to be faithful to that, which is the foundation of a Christian's assurance of hope. Like your assurance of faith is directly connected to The character of God and his faithfulness. Now here's the promise from Genesis 12. And I also want want you to see this as the trailhead of the path that will lead to the offspring of Eve who will crush the offspring of the serpent. We read, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's pretty obvious of what's going on here. God will bless and make a nation out of Abram. And that nation will bless the entire earth. To really understand the backstory of Hebrews 6, I need to take you to a few more passages in the book of Genesis. Here's Genesis 17, where God speaks to Abraham about making a covenant. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, as God speaking to Abraham, and your offspring 
after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Here's how the balls advanced in Genesis 17. God makes a one-way covenant with Abraham. That is to say, God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham and his offspring. The covenant made with Adam and Eve was conditional. It was a different kind of covenant. Meaning the covenant can be broken, and if it's broken, the covenant's done with, right? And Adam and Eve did break it. But not with this covenant with Abraham. There are at least two parts of this covenant from Genesis 17. God is going to be the God of Abraham and his offspring, and God is not going anywhere. Two, God is going to give them the land of Canaan. But there's actually a massive problem at this point of the story with Abraham. Abraham and his wife do not have children. A lot of you know this story, right? We read in Genesis that Abraham's wife, Sarah, cannot have children. If God is going to multiply their offspring, kids are kind of an essential factor. So, that is kind of a big deal. How is God going to fulfill his promises? As the story continues, God fulfills his promise that Abraham will have a son named Isaac. The eventual birth of Isaac is not without its toils and bad choices on behalf of Abraham and Sarah. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Nonetheless, God is faithful. And on the whole, Abraham's faith in God is also growing. But the climax of the story about Abraham actually happens in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, God's ability to keep his promise is on display as Abraham's faith in God is put to the test. You'll recall that after Isaac was born, God tested Abraham. God tells Abraham to take his son to the land of Moriah to offer a burnt offering. Not a grain offering, but a burnt offering, which means there will be fire. God wants Abraham to offer a sacrifice. He and Isaac grab the donkey and almost everything they need to offer a sacrifice, wood, a knife, a means to start a fire, etc. They have everything but the sacrifice itself. Even Isaac is like, "Uh, hey, Dad, uh, what about the lamb? Right? We need a lamb. But Abraham tells his son that God will provide. As the story goes, Abraham was about to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, but was stopped short by an angel, and God provided a ram that was tangled up in the thicket. What we need to see is that God is faithful, and Abraham passed the test. As a result, God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
We've already seen that God will bless the offspring of Abram. God is going to give them the land. God is going to be their God. Now we see that the offspring of Abraham will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. Now let's check a few boxes regarding the faithfulness of God. Did God bless the offspring of Abraham? Check. Did God give them land? Eventually, yeah, check. Did God multiply the offspring of Abraham? Yeah, check. I mean, just stop, pause, think about Christians throughout the world. That multiplication has happened. Is God still the God who is worshipped by the spiritual offspring of Abraham? Check. Go see the book of Galatians, specifically chapter 3. God has fulfilled a lot of promises. How did Abraham respond to God? It says in Hebrews 6 verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. I spoke about patience last week, so I won't belabor the point, but notice the connection between personal and persevering patience and the promise of God. Think about it like this. Between Genesis 12, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, a lot was happening over a long period of time. God did not make a promise, then five minutes later, Abraham saw it fulfilled. No. Day over day, Abraham trusted God, which is what the author of Hebrews wants us to see, along with the faithfulness of God. Now, let's read about the oath that God makes. And I want you to see that God's character is on the line here. We read in verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves, like we swear before God, he's greater than us, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What I'm trying to help you see is this idea of holding fast to the hope set before us is directly connected to the oath. When a politician takes an oath to uphold the United States Constitution, they are fallible, right? I'm not trying to be cynical by any means, uh, but because of the nature of sin, I do not doubt that some politicians, regardless of political party, take an oath for their own personal gain. Yeah, I'll put my hand on this Bible, I'll say the words, but at the end of the day, it's about them. Not so with God. Not so with God. God does not make an oath for his own sake. He makes an oath for the sake of believers. He swears by himself for you. For you, Christian. He swears by himself and to himself because there is nothing higher to swear by. God is showing us that his plan and purpose for redemption are unchangeable. He made promises and God has kept his promises. God did not make a promise and then suddenly sat on the sidelines hoping it would be fulfilled. No way. God does not lie, verse 18, and God is providentially at work in his, in his creation. 
God's oath is accompanied by action that secures what he has promised. And here's a metaphor for what is going on. I even wrote a little picture in my, in my manuscript. God makes a promise, and then like a railroad track, God acts to uphold the promise, that's one rail, while at the same time making an oath to ensure to you that the promise is going to be secure. That's the other side of that track, right? I got the action and the oath. Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20, shows us that our assurance and hope are founded in the fact that God will see his plan and purpose through. Period. You can count on it. But just think for yourself how unsure we can be about so many things in life, right, as people. Now think to yourself, what can you be assured of? Well, what we see right here is that God's faithful and he will fulfill his promises. You can be assured of that. That can bring you, that can bring a Christian so much hope and comfort. So much hope and comfort. Now that I've gone on to great lengths to show you the relationship between God's promises and Abraham, I now want us to do some heart work. Because let's be completely honest. Christians have staked their lives on several important promises. Some have been fulfilled and some have yet to be fulfilled. For example, we could see throughout the book of Isaiah that through the offspring of Abraham, there will be a future Messiah. We know that to be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the promised Messiah. Now by faith, Christians believe the Messiah suffered, died, and was buried. We were not standing at Golgotha when the greatest injustice that this world has ever known took place. You weren't standing there. I was not standing there. But we believe in the promise by faith. We believe that the vision of Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We also believe that Christ rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We celebrate the fulfillment of these promises. Again, God has kept his oath. Now here's the heart work. Sometimes it is the promises that have not been yet fulfilled that can become difficult to settle in our hearts. Allow me to ask a simple question, maybe two. Do you believe that Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? Do you believe that? Because that's a promise. Do you believe that promise will be fulfilled? Like, the answer to that question alone shapes you. It shapes what you believe about God. It shapes what you believe about the character of God, right? How does Revelation, for example, Revelation 1-7 shape your life? Do you have hope in this verse? Behold, it says, He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I mean, I could pull from hundreds of verses that are like this. Do you believe that? You know, our, our lot in life is not much different than Abraham. It's not. 
We also wait for a promise to become a reality, a promise to be fulfilled. We wait fighting for faith in what God has said. We wait, hopefully, patiently, right? Knowing that there are temptations to not trust in God's promises. That certainly exists. There's temptations not to trust. I mean, for all the bloviating about Abraham, here's one more story we actually need to learn from. In Genesis 16, before Isaac was conceived, Sarah and Abraham did become impatient. They desperately wanted a child, and Hagar, their servant, became their surrogate. Because they trusted in themselves and not in God's promise, they felt the effects of their sin. We need to learn from the mistakes and lack of faith and a lack of trust from Sarah and Abraham. We need to learn from that. So, once again, this is why we have assurance and hope. Actually, from from Genesis 16, there's another reason why we can have assurance and hope. You can be assured, Christian, that God will complete the good work that he has begun in you. And you can have hope for a glorious future. But here is a crucial point from the story. God is merciful and faithful. Even when Abraham and Sarah were being knuckleheads, God is faithful. God is merciful. God was merciful to Hagar and her son Ishmael. And God is faithful and will ensure that his promises are fulfilled. Go, go back to the story I told you about the young man I counseled about having an assurance of faith. I can stand by what I said because of what I see in the sins of Abraham and Sarah. If God treated Abraham and Sarah in the same way he treated Adam and Eve, the Lord would have been done with them. Kicking you out. You're not worthy of the land. You're not worthy of the promise. But God didn't treat Abraham and Sarah in that way because of a different covenant. The covenant paperwork was not ripped up. But by the grace of God, God fulfilled his promises. It was not ripped up because the promises God made with Abraham were not contingent upon him, but upon the faithfulness of God. Therefore, Christians must align their hearts and minds toward God and his character. So, as we look forward to the return of Christ, as we look forward to the new and renewed garden city, as we look forward to seeing Jesus face to face, we wait with persevering patience, last week's sermon, and we wait fighting for greater faith in the promises of God, knowing that he will keep his oath. He will keep it. He will keep it. I want to end by connecting this sermon with what we will see, Lord willing, next week. We not only have a secure hope for the future because of the reliability of God's oath, but we have a secure future because Jesus is the greatest priest after the order of Melchizedek. And yes, we're finally going to get to Melchizedek. I think Chloe was asking me this week, Dad, when are we going to get to Melchizedek? Over next week, Lord willing. 
the author of Hebrews drops a massive hint about what this means, about Jesus being in this order, in this line, in this priestly line. We read in verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews 6 that God is unchangeable. In theological terms, this means he is immutable. In verse 18, it says, I quote, by two unchangeable things. Like when I first read that, I'm like, what does that even mean? Two unchangeable things. It's like you were making a sentence and you had a throwaway statement and you kind of put it in the middle of the sentence. Now nothing makes sense. Two unchangeable things. What's going on? What does this mean? Well, I think it is a reference to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 has already popped up in Hebrews and I think it's here. What are the two unchangeable things that apply to Jesus from Psalm 110? Well, first, he is in the order of Melchizedek. And second, Jesus is an eternal priest. Well, what does that exactly mean? Tune in next week. But what I want you to see for today is that it is because of Christ's status as a high priest that he could go behind the curtain. It is also because Jesus is the greatest sacrifice that that same curtain was torn into two when he died on the cross. Here's what we read after Jesus cried out for the last time and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, fallen asleep mean died, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So, press on, friend. Press on with full assurance and hope. The temple curtain has been torn because Jesus is our eternal and great High priest, and God is faithful to fulfill his promise, and we want greater faith to know that God will continue to be faithful to fulfill his promise by upholding an oath. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.